All right. Cool. Well, uh, welcome to River City Church. Good to have you guys here this morning. Our sound system was being a little finicky on us. But it is good to be with you guys, good to uh, open God's Word with you. If you are new or visiting, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. As always, uh, I get the privilege of opening God's Word and studying that with you guys this morning. Uh, We're in the middle of a series in the book of Colossians, um, and uh, this morning we kind of reach a turning point uh, in the book of Colossians. We reach a a turning point in in the story, and this kind of happens in almost every one of Paul's Letters. He spends the first part of his letter reminding uh, people about the gospel, reminding them about who Jesus is and all that he's done, and then he moves on to applying those truths in their lives. And that's where we're at this morning. Paul has spent chapter 1 and 2 proclaiming to us the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus and how when by faith we put our trust in the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus, our identity and our relationship with God, it fundamentally changes. Who we are fundamentally changes. And Paul was saying that Jesus is enough because he is supreme. He's enough to save us. He is enough to sanctify us. And what we've said over the past few weeks is that Jesus plus nothing is all that we need to be made right with God and to grow in godliness. These truths are at the heart of what we talk about when we talk about the indicatives of the gospel Paul always begins with the indicatives. He always begins with what is true. But he never ends there. The indicatives of the gospel always lead to the imperatives of the gospel. You see, the indicatives are who we are in Christ and our identity. And that always leads to what we do because our identity always precedes what we're called to do. And the order of that is really important. The order of the imperatives and the indicatives is really important. What we saw last week is what happens when you flip these. What happens if you begin with what you do rather than who you are. If you begin with your actions rather than your identity, what we saw last week is when you do that, you get legalism. Legalism is about starting with the imperatives. It's about starting with what we do. It's about relying on our actions or our obedience or our performance as the basis for earning or maintaining the identity that, God, that we have with God or the status or the standing or the relationship that we have with God. And we said it last week, we saw that legalism, it produces, often it produces really good behavior. It produces lives that look clean on the outside, that look ordered, that look Godly, but what we said is that legalism is just a mowing over of the weeds. The lawn of your life might look really nice, but no matter how much you mow over the weeds, they will always keep popping up. They will always just keep coming back over and over and over and over again. You see, because legalism is powerless to actually change the heart. It's powerless to actually change who we are. And the real danger of legalism is that it is, what it really is, is just self-reliant rebellion against God that masquerades as righteousness. Legalism looks really godly, but it's really just a rebellion, self-reliance that masquerades as righteousness. It's It's worthless to save us. It is worthless to actually change anything about us. And what it really does is just robs us of the life and the joy that the gospel brings. And instead, it turns our relationship with God into duty and into obligation. And what it produces is either prideful self-righteousness, 
or just despair because you just feel like you can never, ever measure up. If our goal is to look like Jesus, if, if the, the purpose of our lives is that, we might, is that we might resemble him and look like him and imitate him, then legalism, what it actually does is it cripples our ability to actually imitate Jesus. It cripples our ability to actually grow in holiness because it is impossible to obey God on your own effort, which is why we needed Jesus in the first place. You see, the scary truth about legalism that we saw last week is that it is the default tendency of every human heart because the default tendency of every human heart is self-reliance. We want to trust ourselves. We want to rely on ourselves. We want to do it ourselves. We're all tempted to functionally think this way, that our behavior, that our actions, that our uh, that our, what we do is the thing that primarily affects our status or our standing, our relationship with God, which is why we need to get reminded about the indicatives of the gospel all the time. Which is why we need to be reminded about what is true because of all that Jesus has done all the time. You see, the gospel, it shows us a different way to grow in godliness. It shows us a different way. It shows us the way to actually grow up into looking like Jesus. And what Paul is going to do this morning is course correct the Colossians, and I pray that it would be a gracious and gentle course correction for our hearts as well. See, Paul is showing them this morning in our passage the only way to actually live lives that please the Lord. He's showing them the gospel way to sanctification. You see, legalism, just, this, is, this is like subtly different, but really, really wildly different. You see, legalism calls us to become by our own effort what we think we are supposed to be. Legalism calls us to become by our own effort what we think we're supposed to be, but the gospel calls us to become by God's strength what he has already declared that we are. Legalism is about calling us to become by our own strength what we think we're supposed to be, but the gospel is about relying on God's strength to become what he has said we already are. You see, legalism is about getting or maintaining an identity. But the gospel is about living in light of an identity that we already have. And that changes everything. You see, the indicatives of the gospel precede the imperatives. Who we are in the gospel precedes what we're supposed to do. And it makes the gospel not only really good news, but it makes it actually powerfully transformative news. It's been my prayer this week as, we, as I've studied and as I've prepped, that I get a, as I get a chance to remind us about the gospel that it would be life-giving to you, that it would be fresh, refreshing to your heart, that it would be just like good news to your heart, especially in the midst of a wintry Sunday morning. <laughs> My prayer is that more than that, it would, that the gospel would be the thing that empowers us and that motivates us to pursue godliness and to reject sin, not just as individuals, but together as a church. And along that, God would graciously root the truths of the gospel deep into our hearts in such a way that it would be the thing that calls us, that draws us towards godliness, that, that, that roots out any pursuit of sin in our lives. And so to that end, let's pray as we dig into God's word this morning and see how the gospel might be good news for us. 
God, thank you so much for who you are and all that you've done. Thank you so much for your word, which reminds us of those truths. God, my, the, the words I have prepared, the stuff that I have written, it just is worthless. It doesn't mean anything unless you're the one that causes it to have effect. And so, God, I just, I just, I, I don't have what we need this morning. Only you have what we need. And so, God, I just ask that you would be gracious, that you might fill me with your spirit, that our time together in your word would be, that you would just graciously meet us in that, that you would be the one transforming our hearts as we study what is true about you and about who we now are in you. God, we just, we need you to be the one that does that. We don't have any strength or power on our own to change our hearts or our desires or, or for me, even as I preach, to be effective or fruitful. God, all of that comes from you. And so, God, we just come, we just humbly ask, God, would you, for our good and for your glory, would you root the gospel into our hearts and would you cause us to be a people that looks and resembles Jesus in our lives and in our actions and in our desires? We need you. We ask that you would graciously do it, God. Amen. Amen. We are in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Verse 1 begins this way. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Verse 5, therefore, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, and lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. And you used to walk in these ways in your life that you once lived, but now you must also, get, you must also rid yourself of all such things of these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your, from your lips. Don't lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator. Therefore there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Our passage this morning is full of lots of imperatives. It is full of lots of instructions about what we are supposed to do. Set your hearts on, set your minds on. Verse 5, put to death. Verse 6 and 7, rid yourselves of. Later on, do not. It's full of these commands of what we are supposed to do. But there's really just one thing that Paul is calling Christians to here. Paul's calling us to be who we already are. Paul's commands is, the essence of all his commands is, be who you already are. Paul spent the first two chapters reminding the Colossians about who Jesus is and all that he had done and who the Colossian believers now are because of the person and the work of Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 21 said that we were alienated from God, we were enemies of his, but verse 22 goes on to say that by, but God reconciled us by Christ's physical body. Chapter 112 says that God qualified us to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. And now that because of that, we are now children of God, members of his family, brothers and sisters in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 14 says that we were condemned in our sin. We were found guilty. We were sentenced. 
But chapter 2 goes on to remind us that on the cross, God canceled our record of debt, that he paid the penalty that we owed in Christ. Verse Chapter 122 said that now instead of being found guilty, we are found holy in God's sight. We are without blemish. We are free from accusation. Chapter 1, verse 14, in Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of all of our sins. Chapter 2, verse 13, we were dead in sin, but now, chapter 2, verse 13 goes on, but now we are alive in Christ. We were raised with him through faith in the working of God. In chapter 1, verse 13, God rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. Chapter 2, verse 10, in Christ we've been brought to fullness. We're complete in him. That's the identity that the Apostle Paul is wanting to remind these believers of. You were aliens, but now you're children. You were condemned, but now you are free. You were dead, but now you are alive. And all of that is because of Jesus. And it's in him and through faith in him that all of those things become true of you. And now in chapter 3, Paul says, so be who you are. Be who you already are. Chapter, verse 1 begins this way. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. The since is Paul's referring to everything he just said for the last two chapters. Since, because all of that is true. Because of all that Jesus has done for you. He's saying, live like it. Live in light of those truths. Live in light of who God has already made you to be in Christ. You see, the imperatives in the passage are rooted in our identity. One commentary I thought really helpfully put it this way. He says, Paul describes the status of believers. And then he describes the servanthood that follows from this new status. In this way, the indicatives of the gospel, who we are by virtue of God's grace, they drive the imperatives of our lives what we do in accordance with God's word. And Paul is saying, because you are in Christ, and because all that is true of him is now true of you, live like it. Live in light of what is true of you already. Paul's command, be who you already are, it comes in two parts. This, This week and next week, we'll dig into both of those parts. Parts one, as we'll see this week, of what it looks like for us to be who we already are means that we need to put sin to death. We need to root out our old self. And part two, as we'll see next week, is that we need to pursue Christ-like character. And so to become who we already are, to be who God has said we already are, it means one that we reject sin and one that we pursue Jesus. We have new life in him. And so this morning as we study, it's all about the question of, Paul says, you've been made new in Christ. You have been raised with him. And he begins by talking about what new life in Christ looks like. And the thing that he emphasizes this morning is that new life in Christ looks like putting sin to death. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. That language is really strong. Paul, in verse 9, goes on to say, you used to live in sin. You used to walk in it. It was the way you once were. At the heart of what Paul is getting at this morning, he says, even though you are no longer slaves to sin, even though you are raised with Christ, even though you are free in him, he says you still dabble around in it. And he says you need to stomp it out, you need to kill it, you need to take it out back, and you need to shoot it. 
Paul's going to name some specific things this morning that need to be put to death in the lives of Colossians and in the lives of all who would call themselves followers of Jesus. But it's really important here to understand, before we even begin to get into the list, it is really important to understand that it is not a comprehensive list. Neither is there really anywhere a comprehensive list found in the Bible. And this is just an aside, but I think what happens a lot of times is when we're trying to teach people what it looks like to follow Jesus, we try to just get people to like follow a list, look at the things that we're supposed to do and not supposed to do. And, and I think the, the danger of relying so much on a list of what is good and right and true, and rather than relying on the Spirit's correction and training in our heart, is that what we end up doing is that, um, as Jeff Vanderstelt says, is we teach people to walk in paths of approval. We teach people to just walk in paths of approval. And if I would just follow the list, if I'll just do the things, then I'll be cool. Modeling Christ-like behavior is not bad or wrong or evil, but it just can't be the only way in which we teach people what it means to obey God. The lists aren't comprehensive. They're never going to deal with all of the issues of the heart. But they give us a lens into seeing what is true about what God loves and what he hates and what he pursues and what he rejects. So in verse 5, Paul identifies five sins which are focused on the individual. Four of them have to do with sexuality. He talks about sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desire. Sexual immorality, when he's using that phrase, he's talking about all sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage. And when he uses the word impurity, he's referring to the defiling of, of a person that comes in connection with sexual immorality. When he's talking about lust and evil desire, that's, those Greek words is really actually kind of one thing that's meant to go together. You see, when Paul is talking about sexuality, he's not talking about that sex is evil, that it is gross, that it's wrong, or that it's bad. He's, God made it. God designed it. God thinks it's good. The problem is with lust is that it turns healthy sexual desires into controlling self-centered passions. That word evil desires, uh, the, the word literally translated, what it means is over-desires. It's consuming desires. And what happens with lust is that lust dehumanizes another person and it turns them into the object of your self-gratification. And what happens is when lust goes unchecked, a, a passion of unhealthy desires is cultivated and habits are formed with feed each other. And so lust encourages passion and passion and evil desires, they feed lust and it just circles and it circles and it circles and it circles. That's why when you feel stuck, that's why when you're in the midst of it, sometimes you just feel stuck, you feel caught in it. Because it's just feeding itself. Paul goes on and he adds greed to the list of, of sins that are destroying the individual. He says greed, which is idolatry. Greed's called idolatry because what happens in greed is that, what we, is that we long for something more than we long for God. And that's the definition of idolatry. It's about wanting something more than we want God. It's an over-desire. It could be a thing like a car or a house, or it could be a status like wanting to be in a relationship or wanting to be married or wanting up certain promotion. It could be a perception, whether that's being loved by someone or respected by someone or approved of by someone. Paul goes on in verses 8 and 9, and he addresses six additional areas of sin that focus on our interactions in light of the community. These sins destroy relationships, and they're more expressive, as one commentator notes, of attitudes than of specific actions. 
It also is interesting to note that it's tempting to look at this list, the second list, in verses 8 and 9, as like the, these really aren't that bad. The first list is like varsity sin, second list, JV sin, right? It's not as bad. It's not, it's not as serious. I think just like one of the things that has just most crippled the church's ability to walk in holiness is that we, that we like grade sin. And we say, yeah, this is, this is really bad and this is not. And the truth about the gospel is that all sin is a rebellious rejection of God as king. And all of it at the root is evil. You see, what happens in the church, I think, often is that we, uh, we identify and accepted some sins, usually the ones that have to do with sexuality, as the worst possible of sins. And we turn a blind eye or we try to just explain away the other ones. Ah, oh, anger. Mm. He's just passionate about what he cares about. Wrath or malice. He's, he should feel that way. They were, I was wronged. I deserve payback. It's just justice. Slander or lying. It's, it's just my opinion. Everyone's entitled to their own opinion. That, that other person really is a jerk. Obscene talk. Who decides what words are bad anyways? That joke wasn't crude. You just took it the wrong way. Lying. Everyone lies sometimes. Sometimes you just need to lie in business. It's just the way that it has to work. It's, sometimes it's just a bending of the truth. See, what we do that is what we're trying to do is justify ourselves. And that's the essence of rebellious sin. Because we say, God, no, your way isn't the right way. My way is. I'll bend things so that I can fit in line with it. It's self-reliance. We bend the rules. We, we justify our own sin because what we're trying to do is rely on ourselves. What we don't want to acknowledge, what we don't want to admit is that we don't measure up. And so in the ways that we can, we try to just bend it a little bit so it doesn't feel as convicting. And that's just, that's, that's at the heart of what rebellion is. You see, nobody gets off clean. There isn't one of us here this morning who hasn't sinned in one or some or all of these ways. Some of them we wrestle with more, uh, more roughly than others. Some seem more tempting than others. Some seem more difficult to overcome than others. But we're all guilty of this stuff. And so we know that Paul's commanded us to put sin to death in light of our identity in Christ. The question is just how? Okay, we know what we're supposed to do, so how do we do it? What do we, how do we actually make progress in sinning less and looking like Jesus more? And what we saw in chapter 2 is that the answer is not going to be working harder, trying harder, and setting up extra rules. That's not going to solve the problem. That just mows over the weeds and makes the infestation worse. But the flip is also untrue. It's not just going to happen by accident. We're not just going to meander into godliness. D.A. Carson writes this. He says, people don't drift towards holiness. People do not gravitate towards godliness or prayer or obedience to the scriptures or faith or delight in the Lord. He says, instead, we drift towards compromise and we call it tolerance we drift towards disobedience and we call it freedom we drift towards superstition we call it faith we cherish the indiscipline and the loss of self-control and call it relaxation we slouch towards and we slide towards prayerlessness and we delude ourselves into thinking that we have escaped legalism and we slide towards godlessness and we convince ourselves that we have been liberated you see pursuing godliness will never happen by accident 
So sanctification, our growth in Christ-like character and action and attitude, our growth in godliness, it, it doesn't rely on our own effort completely, but it's also not void of our own effort either. Instead, it's something we intentionally and we actively join God in every day through what D.A. Carson, I think, just really helpfully describes as grace-driven effort. You see, legalism is based on pride-driven effort or fear-driven effort. But the gospel-centered sanctification is based on grace-driven effort. So what is grace-driven effort? What does it look like? What does it appear to be? How do we identify it? What, what, what are the steps that we take? I think Paul just really helpfully begins, and that's what the first part of our passage is about this morning. Verses 1 and 3, we see that part of grace-driven effort involves us setting our hearts and our minds on things above. That word set there, when it says set your hearts in verse 1 or verse 3, set your minds, that word is uh, active imperative, which means it, it's, you, you could really translate it as Set your heart on and keep on setting it. Set your mind on things above and keep on setting your mind on things above. It's an active imperative. It's something that we must ongoingly engage in every day. And it requires us every day to set our hearts and our minds on the things that are above. See, what you are looking at determines where you are going. Emma loves riding her bike. And she's at the stage in riding her tricycle when we go for a walk that she can kind of uh, drive it herself now. We have like the handlebar on the back to like, you know, keep her from driving into traffic, right? But one of the things I think is so funny is that she just is, she's just like riding around and wherever you see her head is looking, that's the direction her bike is going. She doesn't have the ability yet to like look off to the side and keep going straight. Like she starts looking at something, her bike's heading that direction. She's not even trying to do it. And when you grow older, you have the ability to, to look, you know, to keep going straight for a while, but to look off to the side. But the truth is, no matter how good you get at it, where you look will always be the direction you go. What you set your heart on, what you set your mind on, is always the direction you go. That's why texting and driving is such a dangerous idea, right? Because it takes your eyes off of where you are trying to go. And so the question is, what does it look like for us to set our minds, to set our hearts on things that are above? I think the, at the root of that question is just asking the question, what is it that stirs up your heart? What is it that stirs up your affections for Jesus? What is it that when you are around it or when you're in it or who you are with and when you're with those people, what is it about it that really stirs up your heart and that your mind so that what happens is that you, you long for the Lord more and you, you long to obey and you long to pursue him and that you long to love him and give your life for him? And I think there are many things that are true for all of us, and I think there are some things that are true for just individuals. They just vary. But for all of us, I think that a few of those things, it has to be spending time praying and reading God's Word. If that doesn't stir up our affections for the Lord, then there is a much bigger problem. So what does it look like for us to be intentional and deliberate about setting up space and time in our lives so that we might be in God's Word and that we might spend time praying and talking with Him? For me, one of the areas that God's just really convicted me of over the, the last year or so is, is just creating a culture of prayer uh, in my life. And that's something I've always wrestled with and something I've, I've just never been good at spending time praying regularly. 
And so I found this app that just helps me, to rem- that reminds me every time I'm in my car, uh, my watch reminds me to pray. And I have a list of things that I'm praying about, and I'm constantly adding things to that list. And what happens is every time I get in my car, it buzzes and it reminds me. And that, what that's been doing is been growing an attitude of prayerfulness in my heart. And instead of like wasting the 15 or 20 minute drive wherever I'm going, just like listening to sports news or something like that, which is not bad or wrong, for me it was just I needed to, I needed to buy back that time. I need to use that time for what was good. I need to make space for that. Because what happens is I found is that as I continue in an attitude of prayer, as I do that regularly, it stirs up my heart. And so when I'm confronted with things that are troublesome or things that are, make me worry or when I am confronted with problems or things like that, my first reaction isn't to just try to do it myself. Increasingly what I'm finding is that my reaction is to come to bring it to the Lord. And so spending time talking with him, it's, it's stirring up my heart. It's helping me to set my mind on what is true and on who is true and on who is the one that can change all things. For me, I think one of the things that really helps me that stirs up my affections for the Lord is when I listen to gospel-centered preaching. Preaching has always been something for me that, uh, not just like me doing it, but when I listen to the preaching of God's word, that's just been something for me that has always just stirred up my heart for the Lord. Maybe that's just because I'm an auditory learner, and I just that's one of the ways that I just like soak up what is true and the ways that I learn. But for me, when I listen to the truth of God preached, that's just like one of the things that stirs up my heart. And so oftentimes when I drive, I listen to sermons about whether that's things that I'm wanting to preach on or learn about or whether it's just things that I need to be reminded of. I find, I've often find myself in the car listening to a, a servant driving down the road and having God just speak to my heart. Stir up my affections for him and stir up my longing for him and my, and my love for who he is and all that he's done. So for me, sometimes that's in worship, through music that happens. One of the ways I've often found my heart stirred up towards the Lord is when I prepare to give my testimony and when I don't shy away from describing my sin and who I am without Jesus, I get to reveal how good Jesus is and it stirs up my heart to enjoy him more. I'm able to talk about my failures because in them I get to rejoice in who Jesus is and in all that he's done. And I find it, it stirs up my love for him and my affections for him. I think for me, one of the things that really just like, just, just stirs up my heart with regards to this is when I pray about the mission of making disciples with you all. A few weeks ago, or uh, last Saturday, we talked about, um, we spent time as a, as a church talking about um, our theology about mission and what that looks like. And at the end, we spent time praying together about it. Man, I just felt like my heart was stirred in that moment. I was reminded about my friends who need Jesus and my love for them and my longing that they would see Jesus and they would know him and that they would that God would graciously regenerate their hearts so that they might come to love and follow and serve him. And spending time praying with you all about that was like, it just stirred up my love for the Lord and my longing to live for him. One sermon I listened to this last week, the pastor talked about one of the things that for him often does is this whenever he visits a graveyard. In Ecclesiastes, he said, it's, Ecclesiastes said, it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting because this is the end of all men and a wise man will lay it to heart. It reminded me about a few years ago when I went to my grandma's funeral who wasn't a believer. I remember the next morning in the shower just bawling. I remember what was going on in my heart is that there was a sadness. But what God was doing in the midst of that moment is that he was reminding me about the urgency of the gospel and how I needed to share it with a friend of mine that I was praying about at the time. 
And those moments were things that stirred up my heart towards the Lord. So what are those things for you that stir up your heart and stir up your affections? One of my friends in college, he just, for him, it was fishing and hunting and being outside in nature. For me, when I'm outside in nature, most of the time what I'm thinking is, I wish there was air conditioning out here, right? That's mostly what I'm thinking when I'm outside, right? But for him, as he, he just like, he studied nature and he studied those things. And for him, it was just like this thing that stirred up his heart. And as he saw God's creation, as he saw the birds, as he saw all these things, he saw them and he appreciated them in such a way that just drew his heart towards the Lord. For many of you, it's re- as you read books, whether they're books about the Bible or whether they're even just other kinds of books, that, that's, or when you watch movies that have themes that, that stir up your heart. The question is, what is it that draws your heart to the Lord, that reminds you about how much you want to follow him and how much you want to give your life for him? What are the things that stir that up in you? What are the things that bring those things up in your heart? And set your mind on those things. But setting your mind on the things that are above is not just being aware of the things that stir up your affections for Jesus. It also means paying attention to what robs your affections for Jesus. Because verse 2 says, it says, set your minds on Christ and not on earthly things. It's a proactive and a reactive kind of thing. For me, I think the thing that, one of the things that so often steals my affections away from the Lord, that steals my attention, that steals my heart, is just like technology and stuff. I have an Amazon wish list full of all of the stuff that, has, that I've found that can, has consumed my attention. And I, I keep that list not because I'm trying to go back to the list and get all the things eventually, but I keep that list because what I find is that when I'm getting caught in the midst of just like researching and finding what's best about this certain product or this certain thing and getting caught in it, I come and I see it. What happens is I come back to that list and I see all the stuff that I've done that before with. And it reminds me, none of this stuff has ever satisfied. None of this stuff has ever been worth giving it the attention that I've given it. None of it has ever been worth pursuing it the way that I've pursued it. And so I keep that list around because it reminds me that none of that stuff ever satisfied, that it was just a distraction for a while. What is it for you that pulls your affections away from the Lord? Maybe it's things that you listen to. Maybe it's things that you watch. Maybe it's what you consume. Maybe it's the people that you spend time around. What are the things that pull your affections away from the Lord? You need to be aware of those things. We need to ask the Spirit to show us what is what rightly stirs up our hearts towards God and what distracts and lures us away from Him. Sometimes the devil's most most effective deception is to get us to be consumed with things that are good things that aren't godly things. Or to become complacent about things that really are bad, that really are wrong, that really are evil, that really are pulling our affections away from the Lord and to minimize that stuff. You see, grace-driven effort, it calls us to set our eyes on the things that are above. And it calls us to set our eyes on the things that are ahead. Verses 1 or verses 2 through 4, it says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on earthly things. Verse 3, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Verse 4, And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him. You see, grace-driven effort is motivated by our response to all that Jesus has already done for us in the past. 
but grace-driven effort has its eyes set on where we are headed. It has its eyes set on eternity. That's what verse 4 is talking about. When Christ, who is your life, when he who has given you life and fills it, when the one that you live for, when he appears, then you will appear to him. And so Paul is saying, set your eyes on his return. Set your eyes on the fulfillment, the culmination of all things. Set your eyes on eternity and not on the present. What that does is it fuels our longing for Jesus and it fuels our hatred of sin. It calls us to love what he loves and to hate what he hates because our eyes are set on him and our eyes are set on being with him and serving him. That brings us to the second thing about grace-driven effort. You see, grace-driven effort, it ruthlessly confronts and kills sin at the root. Matt Chandler, I think just really helpfully, he talks about how we need to treat sin like a wild lion that is coming to attack us. You don't train the lion, you don't talk nicely to it, you bust out your Smith & Weston 500 Magnum and you shoot it in the head. That's what you do to a wild lion who is attacking you. You cannot train the lion. You cannot tame the lion. I love, I love all these stories when people who like animal, people who like get mauled by animals and they're like, wow, I got, could you believe it? That person got mauled by a tiger. And you're just thinking, uh, why is that surprising to anyone? Like you are meat and tigers like me. If you, if I go to Texas Roadhouse and you put a steak in front of me, I mean, I might wait till I finish the salad to eat the steak, but I'm finishing the steak. I don't need to have a take-home box, right? It will. It is inevitable. It is going to happen. That's what sin is like. Sin is wild. It is going to bite. You might be able to manage it for a while or to mask it for a while, but it will kill you. And so the only way that we reject sin, the only way that we wrestle with sin, the only way that we deal with sin is by killing it, not taming it, not hiding it, not trying to make it appear, make it act right. We try to kill it. Grace-driven effort is violent towards the residual sin inside of us. Verse 5, it says, put sin to death. Our new nature should hate the residual effects of sin. This week in my prep, I think I was just convicted about how often I look at sin in my life and I just see it as something I need to work on. And God, I think his grace is about convicting me about sin in my life. But I was just like, there was just like this conviction that God was saying, you need to have a more serious attitude about the way that you think about sin. It is something you need to work on. It's something you need to work on putting to death. Putting sin to death can't just be stopped by surface-level behavior. It has to be stopped by killing the weed at its root. My dad has an incredible lawn. I mean, the, the guy mows a crosshatch pattern that puts baseball fields to shame. Like, it just looks incredible. Weeds are the enemy of my dad's lawn. They are the arch nemesis of the beautiful green crosshatch. And he knows about uprooting weeds because they are his enemy. He hates weeds. And he goes to great lengths to get rid of the weeds in his yard. One of the things I learned growing up with my dad is that you cannot just mow over the weed. I, I, I thought that was effective. I mean, the dandelions are gone. I can't see them anymore. But from him, one of the things I always learned as a kid is that in order to get rid of weeds, you have to pull it up at the root. But more than that, you need to replace it. Because if you just pull up weeds, more weeds will just keep coming. You need to put new seed down so that what grows in place of it is good. 
We see, I think a lot of times the way that we wrestle with sin is that we try to just remove the effects of it in our lives. We try to just remove the surface thing, the appearance thing, and what we do is we don't wrestle with what's the why behind it. When we think about lust that happens so often, what is the thing that drives that in us? What is the thing that we're looking for to satisfy? For many of us who wrestle with control, why is it that control is the thing that you look to to satisfy? What is it about that that you think will give life or give peace or give patience? What is it about that that you're looking to? You have to deal with the root of what is going on in sin, not just the surface level. We need to replace what is evil in our lives with what is good. You see, our hearts are kind of like a worship vacuum. Something will always fill the void of worship in our lives. And so it's, we need to address the issue of our hearts by pulling up sin at its root. But we need to also plant the seeds of the gospel in place of it. So grace-driven effort, it, it, it requires that we must set our minds on things that are above, set our hearts on things that are above, and keep on setting it on such things. It requires that we, that we have a a root, a rooting out, a relentless, ruthless opposition towards sin that addresses sin at its root and not just tries to mow over it. But lastly, and I just think most importantly, grace-driven effort is a response to the gospel. It comes out of an identity that God has given us. You see, pride and fear, they are powerful motivators, but they will never last and they never give life. Gratitude however, is an even more powerful motivator, and it lasts. You see, when it clicks for you how much you needed God's grace and how greatly you received God's grace and how much you didn't deserve it, and yet how much you have it, what happens is your heart begins to overflow with thankfulness. That's why I remind us about the gospel all the time, because the most powerful motivator in our pursuit of Jesus is our love for him and our gratitude for all that he has done for us. See, in communion, what we are remembering is that Jesus died for us. What we're remembering in communion is that sanctification is worth fighting for. We remember with the bread that Jesus' body was broken for us as he lived the life that we were supposed to live but didn't. And with the drink, what we remember is that his blood was shed for us as he died the death that we should have died and didn't. And we remember Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf and all that it accomplished. And we remember how worthy Jesus is of everything we have to give him. Jesus' work to save us was not free. It was not cheap. It cost everything. And so when we celebrate communion, what we are remembering and we are celebrating It's the great sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. And it fuels our love for him. When you love someone, you give your life for them. When you love someone, you don't want to reject them. You don't want to to dishonor them. You, You want to honor them. You want to please them. When you love someone, when you are grateful for all that they have done for you, like you long to bless them. You long to serve them. And you hate when your actions uh, affect them negatively. See, that's what the gospel is about. That's why we remember communion all the time, because for us, it's a reminder that Jesus' sacrifice 
was incredibly costly. And so our lives given for him are worth anything to do. That our sanctification and our pursuit of obedience and our holiness, it is worth fighting for. It is worth being relentless about rooting out sin in our lives. It is worth doing things that are difficult because Jesus' his sacrifice is worth giving everything to enjoy. Every church does communion a little bit differently. At River City, during our time of musical worship, you go to the back and you dip the bread in the juice. Communion is between you and God, and so there won't be somebody who dismisses you. You go when you would see fit. You don't need to be a member here at River City. You just need to belong to Jesus. I just need to say this. If you don't belong to him, if he is not your savior, then communion is just a, is pointless. Communion is about remembering all that Jesus has done for us and celebrating that and reminding ourselves of his sacrifice. And so as you take communion this morning, I'd encourage you to confess to God what is stealing your affections from him. Or ask him to show you the stuff that's stealing your affections if you don't know yet. Ask him to help you see and pursue what stirs up your affections for him. Ask him to cause you to love what he loves and to hate what he hates. Ask him to remind you of who you are in him. Ask him to remind you about the truths of the gospel. Ask him to empower you by his strength to become what he has said you already are. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful that the imperatives of the gospel drive the indicatives. We are so grateful, King Jesus, that what you have done on our behalf is the basis for our actions and not what we do for you. And so, God, we just ask that you would be gracious in reminding us about the good news of the gospel so that we might be motivated and empowered out of gratitude for all that you have done to relentlessly and passionately and and deliberately pursue godliness and pursue the image of Jesus. God, I pray by your spirit that you would convict us of sin, that you would do that for our good so that we might reject it and turn from it and run from it. God, we need you to be the one that roots out sin in us. Give us eyes to see where is at the root of our rebellion. God, as a community, would you give us, would you just graciously, in, as we are in community, would you use one another to speak those truths and to help us identify the things at the root of our heart, which, which we are so blind often to seeing. God, thanks that you've given us your word, which shows us what is true. Thanks that you have given us your people to remind us of what is in your word that shows us what is true. I thank you that you have given us your spirit so that we might live for you in your power as your people. We love you, God. Amen.